Hello and welcome to A Moon State of Crypto Brainstorm, where we come together once a week to discuss the latest trends and analysis in the crypto world. All opinions expressed by A Moon staff or guests of the podcast are solely their own opinions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment advice. This podcast is powered by Blockworks Group, the only events and podcast production company I trust. For access to the premier digital asset conferences and in-depth podcast content, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. My name is Hani Rashwan. I'm your host, and I hope you enjoyed this week's session. This week, we will be discussing the Bitcoin ETF. In light of the recent rejection by the SEC of the latest application, we want to investigate what this means and what's next for the industry. I'm Hani Rashwan, and joining me today from Moon are Ophelia Snyder, our president, and Lauren Cassis, our head of ETFs. We also have a few friends from outside the firm joining. We have Matt Hoogan, MD and head of research for Bitwise Investments, and Barry Pershkow from Chapman & Cutler. Laurent will be leading this, and Laurent, the floor is yours. Thank you, Hani. So good afternoon all, good morning. Uh, the road to the first crypto ETF has been a long um, journey for everybody, particularly in the US, and there's lessons to be learned. So we just wanted to review how uh, this is uh, being taken by the community, the industry, and particularly by Bitwise, as the SEC has published a highly detailed 112-page response disapproving the filing with the New York Stock Exchange. So the main issues we can see is related to market manipulation. It means that Bitwise and other Bitcoin ETF issuers won't be launching in 2019. It's a big disappointment for the industry and uh, disapproval doesn't sound positive. However, we believe this could actually be a, a blessing and in the fact a productive step to the journey towards getting the SEC to approve a crypto ETP or ETF or a trust in 2020. To put this in context, Historically, first-of-kind ETF, so for instance, bond, gold, commodity, leverage product, have required multiple years of filing, deliberation, response, and refile. In our opinion, a negative outcome would have been short, potentially same issue as before, non-eventful response. This wasn't the case, and in fact, it was seen as the specialist as thorough, updated, and clear guidance before the regulators came back, and hopefully now we can see a clear vision of what the issuers need to do in order to refile for a potential approval. So we have uh, Matt, uh, who's on the line, and um, we look forward to hearing some of his comments and some of the issues that uh, he feels may actually be productive to respond now to the SEC and we'd like to hear uh, what, how he feels about it. And, and I think, Matt, um, one of the things that we get asked a lot by people in the industry, and something that I think you should touch on as well, is the who cares element. So um, why do we even want a Bitcoin ETF? Does Bitcoin need an ETF? So hit on that as well with respect to um, why it is that uh, this is needed in the first place. That's great. Yeah, thanks, Laurent. Thanks, Hany. Uh, I'll hit on that first and then talk about the, the clear pathway that I think the SEC laid out to go from here to approval, hopefully in 2020. Uh, why, why do we need a Bitcoin ETF? 
the reality is uh, th- there is, as you guys know, massive wealth creation taking place in the crypto markets. And that wealth creation is easily accessed by institutional investors uh, and to some degree by small retail investors through apps like Coinbase. But the vast majority of wealth uh, in, in America, at least, has no safe, secure way to access uh, everything that's going on in that space. What an ETF would do is uh, twofold. Uh, for one, it would open up the financial advisor marketplace to make their first investments into crypto. Uh, the financial advisor marketplace in the U.S. accounts for about $24 trillion in wealth. Uh, it's as big as the institutional market. And right there now, there are simply really no products that make it uh, easy for those investors to allocate. Uh, they can allocate through private funds like the ones Bitwise offers uh, or, or or offered by a number of our peers. But it's not easy and simple the way an ETF would be. Uh, secondly, I think uh, an ETF would be safer uh, for most investors than accessing crypto through an app uh, where they run risks of their phone getting ported uh, or their password being lost. So uh, really for everyone but the institutional market, the, the crypto ETF uh, would allow people safe, simple secure way to access the wealth creation going on in crypto. And I think that would be uh, that would be great for them. It would be great for the crypto industry. Uh, and I hope to see it soon. You know, we, we have been working uh, with the SEC over the course of the past year on our filing. Uh, and we stand on the shoulders of people like the Winklevoss twins uh, and many others who filed with the SEC uh, years ago trying to launch a crypto ETF. Uh, and the good news is that we're closer than we've ever been before. So uh, we, we got a 112-page response from the SEC. Uh, it was uh, detailed. Uh, it was you know, painful to read in parts. But they did mention a few clear pathways uh, by which, with additional data and research, at least we hope uh, we can get to approval. Uh, the, the most critical one was uh, developing the thesis that the regulated Bitcoin derivatives market on the CME is a significant marketplace. So we did a lot of work on that. Uh, It's a large market. It now regularly does almost $300 million in trading volume. Uh, But the SEC wants to see more data showing that it is the actual source of price discovery in the Bitcoin market. Uh, And that's fun, exciting, uh, and important research to do. So you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Lots of things to discuss. But uh, among the most important things was showing that the CME futures market as a regulated market uh, is really a, a fundamental source of price discovery in the bit, in the Bitcoin market. And that's one of the things we're going to be working on. And Matt, I think one of the things that um, I would also love to to hear more about is who's the target audience here for the American Bitcoin ETF? Is it retail investors buying this through Schwab and Fidelity or is it institutionals? Is it funds? Is it high net worth? What specifically drives you and and, and where you think the initial demand is going to come from? Yeah, that's great. Uh, It's a great question. Both of those audiences would invest, but the real primary audience is the financial advisor marketplace, the the independent financial advisor uh, who has, you know, 200 million to a billion dollars in assets from a handful or or up to 100 individual wealthy families. Uh, those are the people who control the vast majority of retail wealth in the U.S. The self-directed market is actually very small. The number of people uh, who manage their own portfolios, who trade on Schwab or E-Trade, uh, and are maybe today managing their crypto assets in Coinbase, 
they actually only account for about 5% of the wealth in the U.S. About half of the, the wealth and the vast majority of individual wealth uh, is through the, uh, the, the, the financial advisor marketplace. Uh, and those are the people who would use the CTF. It's similar in many ways if you go back uh, almost 15 years now, or maybe a little more than 15 years, to the advent of the gold ETF. Uh, gold uh, was obviously uh, an idea for people to allocate in their portfolios for many years. Uh, there were ways for people to do it, whether by mining, uh, buying gold mining stocks or going out into the physical market and acquiring coins or bars directly. But it was difficult, uh, it was unwieldy, and it didn't fit into the, the systems and, and custodial processes uh, that financial advisors use. Once the gold ETF was launched, uh, uh, investment into gold uh, rose significantly. Uh, it became part of everyone's discussion of what should be in a portfolio. Uh, and the reason was that it made it easy. And what a crypto ETF, what a Bitcoin ETF would do would be to make it easy. So it's not quite institutional investors, although they would use a Bitcoin ETF. And it's not really retail in the sense of individual investors who uh, self-direct their own portfolio. It's actually in between those. It's the financial advisor marketplace, uh, which really is the source of most wealth in the U.S. Uh, and is the primary user of ETFs in the U.S. Uh, and those would be the people who would be best served by having a Bitcoin ETF at their disposal. Got it. That's super interesting. One of the um, other questions that, that comes up is, isn't there a Bitcoin ETF already listed in the U.S.? I hear about this grayscale Bitcoin investment trust. And so maybe uh, you and Ophelia can gang up on this, um, especially because we also have um, listed Bitcoin instruments, although not in the U.S. and definitely not an ETF. So maybe uh, you, Ophelia, what is this grayscale thing? Uh, why is it not an ETF? What's an ETN? Because we hear some um, products elsewhere. Um, of that variety, what's an ETP, what's um, uh, listed trusts, etc. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take a short uh, short swing, and then Ophelia can finish them off. Uh, GVTC is the only exchange traded version of Bitcoin that you can buy in the U.S. through a Schwab account. Uh, it found a regulatory loophole that allows uh, the shares to trade on the over-the-counter bulletin board market, what we used to call the pink sheets. And the problem with GBTC is it's a closed-end fund. There are a limited number of shares, and it trades at a substantial premium. So uh, over the course of the past few years, it's traded at a premium that ranges from about 10% to 100%. Uh, and if buying uh, Bitcoin is risky enough, uh, buying it at a, uh, a 10 to 100% premium uh, is insane. The real risk for people who are acquiring GBTC today, I believe, is that when and if a Bitcoin ETF launches, uh, I would suspect that premium to disappear and perhaps for the shares to trade all the way to a discount. Uh, so so there's, there's substantial risk of loss uh, if you're buying it. I understand why it exists. It's the only way through the regulatory uh, challenges of today to get a listed product, but it's a thoroughly imperfect product. Uh, and I think that people who acquire it uh, do so at great risk. Ophelia, do you have anything to add on the um, Grayscale uh, product and then uh, talk a little bit about ETNs and ETPs and such? Sure. Um, happy to give some more context around that. So part of the GBTC product is really that 
It has a delayed creation schedule as a result of its regulatory status. So unlike um, a traditional ETF or an ETN or an ETC, or sort of any of the other related products, um, the GBTC products, can o- you can only create new supply of them on a 12-month lag. So what that, what that means is effectively institutional investors can come into the product today at the net asset value without the premium, and they can then liquidate that position 12 months later on the open market. And those dynamics are very different than an ETF, right? So a traditional ETF has effectively continuous creations and redemptions, which lets you sort of match two disparate supply-demand curves. You have supply and demand for the box, call it an ETF, an ETN, whatever the actual structure is, as well as a supply-demand curve for each of the individual components. And to make those two things trade in line, you need to basically be able to adjust supply and demand in the packaged product. And the GBTC product suffers from an inability to do that in real time. And so increased market demand can result in these very large premiums being created. And it's a little bit different when you think of it sort of structurally and operationally than, you know, products like um, a more traditional ETF or an ETN or some of the work, uh, you know, Bitwise has been trying to do in the U.S. And I think that's really a critical point when you think about investing in these products to really understand um, the differences in product construction and, you know, what the real deltas that can create in returns. Um, you know, the, our products, for example, absolutely function on that sort of daily create routine basis, which lets them really trade in line with um, the crypto market versus um, having, you know, some of these related issues with premiums and discounts. And, you know, th- these are obviously not available in the US and they're, you know, for the European market and especially for Swiss market, but it's a sort of a similar architecture to, um some of what people talk about when you think about ETFs and ETNs and ETCs um, globally. ETNs um, specifically, uh, you know, you also have that sort of delta between physical and synthetic, um, especially on the notes side. And I think that that um, can also significantly impact the way these products trade, especially depending on how that hedging is done and what your counterparty exposure looks like. And I think in crypto, we've sort of seen a, a wider range of these applied and sort of a wider range of uh, different product constructions. And I think we've yet to really see, especially for the American public, something that, you know, really looks and feels like the more traditional products on the market and the ones that are, um, let's call it institutional grade structuring, but available and accessible to a retail market. Thank you for that. Um, Color is extremely uh, helpful, uh, Matt and and Ophelia. We also have um, Barry on the line, and Barry is today a partner in um, one of the premier uh, DC uh, law firms and and an expert on ETFs. Um, He's also had an extensive history both at the SEC um, as well as um, his current uh, legal practice um, and has had a, a part of some of the most historic uh, recent ETF launches, including uh, the first leveraged and inverse ETFs and the first leveraged and inverse commodity um, ETFs, the first long short ETFs, which sound quite risky and, and probably took a really long time to, to come uh, to fruition and develop. And prior to uh, his time now at Chapman, um, Barry actually served as senior counsel with the SEC. And so 
a lot of people in the community that is that is the crypto ecosystem are now suddenly um, really engaged with things like proposed rule changes and common periods and all these uh, fairly specific um, procedures and techniques from the perspective of the regulators, from the perspective of uh, the, the legal and regulatory frameworks here, why is this taking such a long time, especially considering some of the other things that have been accepted? And most especially in this case, considering that there is a product out there, like Matt said, on Schwab, available to retail American investors um, that has a premium of NAV that varies between 30 and 150%. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, You know, maybe the SEC is living in dog years and it takes them a long time to get around to to what we think should be uh, dealt with in in short order. But... um, you're right. It does. It, it. It. You know, the leverage inverse funds and the, and the first commodity funds all took um, a long time. In the case of leverage inverse, it was seven or eight years. In the case of Presidian, which is the most recent um, uh, non-transparent uh, ETF approval, I think they were up to something like nine years. Um, so, you know, I think Matt Matt Hogan's right when when he says that you know. This this takes a while, and there's a there's a, a back and forth, and a in uh, uh, a period of time that you've got to go through with the staff to get them comfortable with the data. Um, frankly, I think they you know they tend to approach things viscerally, and there's always a sort of one step forward, two steps back kind of problem with the SEC. They they read the news, they hear about things like Mount Gox. Uh, they hear about hacking, and and those are first date impressions that that are hard to get rid of. Um, they don't necessarily directly impact what Bitwise tried to do or what others have been trying to do in terms of an ETP. But but like I said, they do form um, sort of hardwired memories about about the riskiness of this space in their view, and I think it it takes a while to get to get over that. Um, Consider that you know we've had in in the U.S. years and years, twenty, twenty-five years, thirty years of of regulation by exemptive application. When I was at the staff, we went through multiple iterations of an ETF rule. We were there, and there was you know one or two commissioners who stumbled on a couple of issues, didn't really understand them, and all of a sudden it's off the agenda. And and that's the way that that unfortunately you know rule by commission works. Um, and, and Barry, I think one of the one of the things that might be really um, elucidating for some of the folks that might not be as familiar with this, uh, it would be good to also explain how the yeah, SEC sure. works and how the, these decisions are made, how many commissioners are there, yeah. uh, etc. Uh, whether they're political appointees or yeah. not, what their terms are. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll do it from a, a sort of a high level view, but there, there's five commissioners, uh, one of which is the chairman. Um, the, the four commissioners that are uh, other than the chairman have nothing to do with the commission staff, which is all, which are all the people that work for the SEC. Um, that Those people work for the chairman. And so in that role, the chairman's got a very powerful position. He sets the agenda for the commission. 
uh, and he's and he controls the staff and the and and sort of sets the staff uh, in a in a direction uh, from a policy perspective. Uh, the other commissioners simply have a vote, and that that actually surprises them when they first get there. They're they're they, I think many of them get there thinking they're going to do all this great work, and they realize that um, there's very little for them to do other than to cast a vote. Um, the the staff itself are all the individuals uh, that are organized under the chairman, and that's broken into various divisions and offices. Uh, and over the years, those divisions and offices have changed, changed names, but they generally reflect um, they typically reflect an act, a statutory act that passed, uh, you know, in the case, for example, of the 1933 Act, which is the registered offering uh, uh, statute, that is administered by the Division of Corporation Finance. Um, the 1940 Act, the Investment Company Act of 1940, which regulates regulated investment companies, that's overseen by the Division of Investment Management. Uh, Markets, national uh, securities exchanges, the 1934 Act, which is the Securities Act of 1934, is overseen by the Division of Trading and Markets. So what you wind up having, and with ETFs and ETPs, it's kind of particularly um, uh, acute when you see it work, but because ETPs have overlapping concerns, that is, they're exchange traded, so they're you're implicating the division of trading and markets in the 34 act but they're also they also can be um, investment companies and so there there's a concurrent jurisdiction if you will with uh, investment management so there's a lot of moving pieces and 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 because they all sort of offer their shares publicly at least many of them do you involve now the division of corporation finance which is the 33 act folks and so when you have all of these people in a room together, um, uh, they all have slightly different regulatory prerogatives and directives. They also have slightly different cultures. Um, they are working together more and more. And when I was there, it was one of my jobs was to sort of coordinate um, amongst all those people a bit better than, than historically had been the case. But I think some of the delays that you see or some of the delays that the, that the that folks out, outside of the building perceive kind of come as a result of the organization of that of that building, which is which is um, historically not project based. Right. It's not like uh, it's not like like you would see in a in a in a typical company or operating company. You, you don't have, you know, like Apple sets forth a, a, a team that that develops the iPhone. There's nothing like that at the SEC. It's all very um, siloed. And so getting together and rowing in the same direction has been a challenge um, organizationally for, for the SEC. They've been doing a really much better job over the past several years. But um, historically, I think some of these delays are vestiges of that. Got it. So with all of that said, now we know how it works, why it's valuable, um, how long it has taken before, I think is really important uh, of a point to make that this is normally a difficult and long process. Um, we do not work very quickly here. Let's go into those 112 pages of, of feedback and um, what specifically um, the bitwise approach is here. I think in one of the 
the presentations and all of this is um, uh, is publicly available, and we'll share it in the in the description of this of this podcast. Um, Bitwise says something like, "Our approach is different and simple." Um, a lot of people have made great progress. We're standing on the shoulder of, of, of giants, as as Matt said, but we're going with a different approach here. So I think it would be super helpful for Matt and Barry to sort of divide this one out and talk about what was the different approach. Um, let's get into the nuance here. Uh, we have we have time. Um, what did you try that was different this time, and then? What was the actual specific response and what that means? Uh, I'm happy to take a swing at, at why our approach was different. And then maybe, maybe I'd love to hear what Barry thinks about the approach and and the response. Uh, you know, I, I think there have been three real main efforts to drive the uh, the Bitcoin ETF forward. Uh, the first was the Winklevoss approach. Uh, they filed based on, you know, pricing Bitcoin off a single exchange, their own. Uh, which they felt they had regulatory oversight of. Uh, and, and the SEC rejected it for, for various reasons, which I'll explain in a second. Uh, the second was Van Eck, uh, which took a clever approach of rather than drawing prices from the spot Bitcoin market, uh, they would draw prices from uh, three over-the-counter regulated uh, market makers who would tell them how much Bitcoin is worth. Uh, you know, the, the, the big challenge the SEC has had is that the underlying spot markets in Bitcoin are unregulated. So uh, even even a well-developed, relatively well-regulated exchange like Coinbase is not regulated at the same level of the NYSE. Uh, and the SEC is concerned about the potential for market manipulation. So these attempts, uh, you know, whether whether it was by by the Winklevoss twins with using a single exchange, which they had surveillance over, or whether it was with Van Eck uh, skewing the exchanges in favor of regulated OTC traders, uh, were attempts to deal with that issue. Our approach was different. Uh, one of the things we knew about the market was that, uh, and this is this is not a secret uh, in crypto is that the the sort of reported volume and the number of reported exchanges out there is overstated dramatically. Uh, that the vast majority of exchanges that list on CoinMarketCap are reporting fake volume and aren't nearly the size that they claim to be. So at the time we did the study, uh, CoinBene was supposed to be the largest exchange. It's an exchange no one's ever heard of, no one we've met has ever traded on. Uh, no uh, over-the-counter market maker we know has ever worked with them, uh, and it has no sort of capital history or record. So we were skeptical that these exchanges were real, or at least that they were as big as the established exchanges like Coinbase and, and Kraken and Binance that we all know. Uh, so our approach was really to uh, sort of toss out uh, what people assumed the Bitcoin market was, and instead do a, a bottoms-up analysis to find out what the real Bitcoin market was. And what we found was that uh, somewhere between 90 and 95% of all the reported volume was, was fake, and that the real volume for Bitcoin was much smaller than people assumed. So at the time we did our initial study, the reported volume on, on data aggregators like CoinMarketCap was about $6 billion a day. And what we found was that the real volume was closer to $300 million per day. Now, we did that study during the, the nadir of Bitcoin volume in March, April, uh, and, and it's rebounded. Now, the real volume is somewhere around a billion dollars a day. 
but it's substantially smaller than the data numbers that you get reported on CoinMarketCap. And Matt, that is um, spot volume only, or did are you including futures like the BitMEX um, contracts and, and the like? No, it, it was spot volume only. Uh, we didn't include the the futures volume. Uh, that was a decision uh, that we made, which which I'm happy to talk about. Uh, uh, but that's that's a good clarification. It was only spot volume. Uh, the the reason we did that was because in the Winklevoss rejection, which was the only other Bitcoin ETF application that went all the way to disapproval, and they got I think it was 92 pages of response back. Uh, the SEC laid out two possible ways to get approval. Those two ways were either you had to show that Bitcoin was uniquely resistant to market manipulation, or you had to show that there was a related derivatives market that was regulated to which you could uh, surveil activity on. Uh, the related derivatives market obviously would be the CME Bitcoin futures market. Uh, and so our approach was, look, uh, if you took coin market cap at face value and assumed there was $6 billion in trading volume, uh, the CME futures market is not significant. It's tiny. It's a couple hundred million dollars a day. But if you actually did the work uh, and, and the work suggested that, that most of the reported volume was not real, compared to the real volume on exchanges like Binance, Coinbase, Kraken, etc., the CME futures market is, is regularly between 20 and 40% of the total volume uh, and that therefore uh, it counts as a significant market. So that was the core of the argument that we advanced. Uh, and, and what the SEC said was it, it needed additional data, uh, particularly on where price discovery occurs, to, uh, to decide if the CME futures market was significant. Uh, but, but that was our approach. Our approach was to take the entirety of the real market and examine it uh, and build an ETF you know, using an aggregated price from all the real exchanges. Uh, and uh, and that, that was the approach that we took. Um, I have a question. Would it be at all possible to deliver to the SEC three or four regulated exchange that you feel comfortable, as well as the APs, to trade on? And if you say that you know, the market can absorb, let's say, two to 300 million a day, that would be sufficient for a products such as a, an ETF to actually um, manage a, a certain amount of inflows or outflows throughout the day. I mean, let's face it, two to 300 million is quite a large amount for any ETFs in, in, in the US. So I'm just wondering, wouldn't it not have been possible to highlight, let's say, I think in your last um, deliberation, you said that six out of the 10 Reg, um, exchanges, uh, digital exchanges are now actually regulated. So wouldn't it be a, a, a potential option just to say, look, we're focusing only on three or four, and we know that these three are gathering at least 100 to $150 million. Uh, I think that's, that's a potential pathway to look at, uh, for sure. I think what the SEC would say, and this was inside their, their response, was uh, that that's a great positive step. Do, does the activity on the other exchanges influence the price on those exchanges? So I think if you could if you could do what you're suggesting, Laurent, but you would also have to show that the activity on the unregulated exchanges does not influence the price 
on these exchanges. Uh, the SEC made clear that uh, even if we were right that most of the volume on these other exchanges were fake, we still had to show that it had no influence on the price on the real exchanges. And I think that would carry over. So they're, they are looking at the totality of the market. Uh, they want to make sure that any activity on any exchange doesn't influence the the prices that you're drawing. So I think what you're suggesting is an interesting avenue. Another interesting avenue is something like backed, uh, the new physically backed futures, which doesn't rely on any physical exchange uh, to set the price. The price is set sort of sui generis on 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 backed, and that would be another way to influence yourself. So there, uh, there, there are a couple different pathways forward, but. Um, I think that's what the SEC would say. They're worried about the totality of the market. Okay, so that that's a very good point uh, where they want to get an overview of the overall market. But if we look at the conventional markets, you know, if we look, for instance, at the equity or even maybe the fixed income, how do you make sure, for instance, in the fixed income market that there is no potential manipulation where there aren't even any exchanges? So how do you consider that where all, all here what we're suggesting is to say, look, there are a couple of APs. These are regulated firms that deal in the ETF industry on a daily basis. They have compliance issue and they have compliance department that dictates where they are allowed to trade. If we just highlight these exchanges and they are regulated and we're only going to fit with these exchanges, surely the unregulated one are not going to be able to um, move, uh, like you suggested, the, the price of any crypto assets. I mean, at least if we're talking about Bitcoin, then uh, I would suggest that the six regulated digital exchanges that we have today are significantly robust. And in terms of their market surveillance technology to monitor whether there is any market manipulation uh, at all. So wouldn't that be also maybe an argument to suggest? I, I, I think that's a great argument. I'd love to hear Barry's thoughts on it uh, and, and particularly how it compares to the fixed income market. It does seem uh, difficult to imagine that that the, the OTC nature of the fixed income market is superior to the, the, the six uh, regulated uh, open exchanges that, that you mentioned. Um, so I think it's a good suggestion. And while we're at it, uh, so uh, Matt, you, you've uh, really summarized well how the approach by Bitwise in this instance was different. Barry, I think it would be uh, helpful before you get into the uh, questions posed by Laurent and Matt to also just summarize for those um, listening, well, what exactly happened here? You know, it was rejected, but the, the nuance behind that, what, what specifically occurred? Sure. So um, the the offering itself, right, is, is done through an S-1 registration statement that I think we talked about corporation finance folks at the SEC review. Um, there's no real meat in the burger for, for those guys. That, that division will generally approve anything as long as the risks um, of the offering can be disclosed. So usually you don't have a problem with, with, with that side of things. Um, where things get dicey is when you move over to try to list something. Um, and the Division of Trading and Markets applies a very amorphous uh, standard uh, to, to list and trade um, an exchange trade investment product. Uh, it's, it's generally got to trade efficiently and be in the interest, you know, in the, in the public interest and sort of, there's a, there's a few other standards that they, that they go by, but basically it's a very touchy feely sort of 
hold your finger to the wind kind of thing. Um, which when you get to a novel product like this, uh, you wind up having some very high, high up folks in the, in the commission have a visceral reaction to a product or a proposal early. Um, here I fear it was, it was negative. Uh, and the, and the evidence I have for that is that it's 112 pages. This wasn't written yesterday. It wasn't written last month or even a few months ago. It was written way longer than that. Um, it took a long time for, for a, a lot of folks to write that and to run it through the, the gauntlet of approvals. There are a number of people at various places at the SEC that had to review this document. And so that, what that tells me is that Bitwise pushed to, or, or through their, through their um, listing exchange, they pushed to have this decision, uh, which forced the hand uh, of, of the Division of Trading Markets to write a denial, something they don't like to do. It's a lot of work. Um, but it tells me that it, it feels to me like it was um, uh, someone, someone starting from a no and reverse engineering that no. Um, and, and as opposed to, for example, Matt, who approaches the product and would start with a yes and writes his, you know, has, has the exchange write the application in a way that um, sort of makes sense to him and to a lot of us, right? But, but I think if you're viewing it as primarily a negative response, right? Is there anything specific that is throwing that off for you? I view it as a negative response. Um, I don't think there's any other way to read it. It's a denial, but it's, um, you know, I think there are some things that, that, that they're holding out in the denial that, that Matt's pointed out that, yeah, it's an, it's a nascent bit, you know, it, 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 the genesis of Bitcoin is, 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 is not that long ago. Uh, and I think there's a bunch of spots in the, in the denial that talk about where the SEC states that further market developments needed. I don't think they're swayed by the by the argument you know, if we only had an ETF. In other words, trading in markets doesn't want to see an ETF create a deep and liquid market with valid pricing. It wants to see the F the ETF reflect that those characteristics. Um, now, one way to attack it may, may be to ask them to flip that notion on its head. And that's historically the way that that the SECs looked at ETFs, which is, you know, once you have a settled market. And it's deep and liquid, and we can verify the trading. We can see it operate. Okay, you can slam an ETF on top of it. Um, but maybe it's time to revisit that. I, I remember when I was at the SEC, we had, you know, we went through the the Greek uh, banking crisis, and there was one. It might have been a Van Eck ETF that was a, a, a Greek based ETF, or maybe it was uh, a. I forgot. Maybe it was Global X. But anyway, um, Matt, maybe you remember from your from your earlier your earlier, uh, professions. But, um, I, what I do remember is we were closely following the value of, of that ETF, even as it's, and, and it never closed off creations or, or redemptions. Um, people didn't create because they weren't confident in the values. But what interested me was at the end when, when Greek, when the Greek stock market reopened, do you know what level it reopened at? It reopened exactly where that ETF was. It was the only thing trading in all those weeks. And no one knew what the values of any of the companies on the Greek exchange should be. 
but but interestingly enough, they they all opened almost exactly at the levels dictated by that ETF, um, which told me that you know, and there are other examples of this that that ETFs can reflect uh, the price of something as opposed to being reflective of it. Um, and by that I mean maybe maybe if we attack it by from the direction of saying. SEC, you you should give us an ETF on Bitcoin because it will be the valid pricing mechanism for Bitcoin. Um, as a yeah, I I I love that. Just to just to jump in there, uh, one of the arguments we made, uh, which which I was surprised was uh, not dug into more carefully. Uh, one of the unique things we did with this ETF was with we agreed to do all creations and redemptions in kind. And actually, to accrue all our fees in Bitcoin, uh, and we did that such that no matter what the NAV was, the NAV could have been one dollar. Uh, the ETF would always have the appropriate amount of Bitcoin per share, and the 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 price that the ETF would trade at would be the price on the open market. In other words, it didn't actually matter to the ETF what the NAV was. Uh, the NAV was just a, a number put out there. Uh, APs would have to create in kind, redeem in kind. We would accrue a fee, our, our fee in kind, uh, but the but the SEC didn't bite on that. But maybe we need to develop that market that that argument more aggressively, as Barry said. That's actually exactly how our products work and how they're priced, right? So we've been running our products for I guess a little less than a year now, um, and that's exactly what we do. So we use the gold entitlement model um, for people who maybe don't know what that is. Most gold, which is sort of a similar market from a trading infrastructure and to some degree regulatory perspective in terms of being sort of a commodity. And the, the challenges initially with listing um, gold related ETFs and ETCs, they priced using a literal number where you say the amount of gold per unit of product. Uh, and the reason to do that was exactly to cut through some of this pricing, these pricing issues and that's exactly what we did in our own ETPs in Switzerland. We price entirely on an in-kind basis using these, you know, daily published entitlements. We take our fee out in crypto proportional to if it's an index product, the index, or if it's a single tracker, um, the underlying asset. And the reason we do that is for transparency, but also for pricing consistency. It makes it much easier. And in addition to that, we try to add sort of multiple data points to help people triangulate real prices. And part of that is through this entitlement, but you can also, you know, look at data aggregator data, look at different types of data aggregator data. You can publish INAVs and sort of provide as much real-time pricing data as possible, all based off of the actual amount of, you know, Bitcoin associated with that product. And it's been our experience that it actually works pretty well. Um, especially given, you know, that uh, trading hours for a more traditional product may, you know, not match the 24-hour trading cycle of um, Bitcoin and other crypto assets. It actually means that, you know, when, when the open happens, you're opening at, you know, the correct price and you're able to maintain that continuity uh, regardless of that, those discrepancies in trading infrastructure between sort of traditional and crypto markets. And it's actually been unbelievably helpful in terms of our products, both from a pricing consistency perspective, but also from a, you know, source of funds, AML perspective and sort of keeping, um, keeping assets within the regulated sphere. And that's been um, a big selling point and not, not just selling in the sense of, uh, you know, uh, 
institutional and retail buyers, but also in terms of dealing with regulators about how you know the immune products were constructed. And and I was just going to add that that I think the in that there there is some more education about in kinding that the SEC could could benefit from. Um, you know, I don't know if it came up, Matt, in, in your discussions with those guys, but one thing that that occurred to me, uh, and I remember this f- from being in the chief counsel's office, is that one day I learned that BlackRock ETFs don't, f- the international ones anyway, don't fair value their holdings, which is a violation of the Forty Act. If you if you you know take it take the Forty Act and its guidance literally, you're supposed to, in other words. During the closed hours of the of the uh, foreign market, the ETF should fair value the security. So, if you have so you know Samsung, for example, and it's and it's not trading, you have to the board's got to take into account intervening events between the close of market and and the close of the domestic trading day here for the ETF. But BlackRock doesn't do that because they in kind things. Exclusively, uh, the, the, they will never vary from the in-kind proposition. And our chief counsel, when I was there, considered that and thought, well, I guess they, they don't have to because they're handing it out in-kind. They're taking it in-kind. In, in other words, we don't care what the value of the thing is as long as you're giving it out, um, which I thought was a really powerful argument for Bitcoin uh, to the extent that these proposals and proposed products were being done uh, in kind, in other words, rely on that pre- precedent. You know, we we don't make yeah, we don't make we don't make ETFs fair value because we don't care what the value of the thing is. In other words, the NAV is infected with bad values. It's funny how how much precedent we can find for a number of different routes here. I love that. That's great. Matt, what's uh, what's next from Bitwise? Um, are you guys reapplying? What what, what is um, what's your thought process there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, look, I, I don't think there's anything fundamental about the Bitcoin market that means there can never be a U.S. listed ETF. Uh, you guys have shown in in Switzerland uh, that ETPs can exist, can work quite well, uh, and we want to bring that to the U.S. market. So, uh, absolutely. Uh, we are going to reapply. Uh, we're working diligently right now on exactly which angle we're going to take as we pursue that. Uh, you guys have opened up some ideas to me on this podcast, so I thank you for that. Uh, but but absolutely, we're not going to stop until uh, a simple, secure ET, ETF uh, offering exposure to Bitcoin exists in the U.S. because we think investors want it and, and we think they deserve it. So uh, we'll be back at this shortly. Uh, you know, we have a team of researchers. Uh, we're already working on it. Uh, we we have meetings uh, every week to see how we're progressing. So, um, yeah, you you can be sure there'll be a new filing from us before too long. Awesome. Looking forward to it. This was it from the Immune team. Thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or would like to see your topic on our next episode, reach out to us on Twitter or LinkedIn. We'll see you next week.